from Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zozan. This week, we speak with novelist and essayist Leila Laalami about her new book, Conditional Citizens on Belonging in America, which weaves together her experiences with an examination of the place of non-white in the broader American culture. Later in the program, Oscar-winning filmmaker Megan Mylon joins us to talk about her new documentary film, Simple as Water, which looks at the everyday life of five displaced families from war-torn Syria trying to rebuild their lives. Stay with us. Leila Laalami is a Moroccan-born writer, equally at home as an essayist and a novelist whose work has earned her a rare seat for a Muslim Arab female at the table of mainstream media and publishing. Her latest volume, titled Conditional Citizens, recounts her sometimes difficult journey as a writer of color and the mainstream media's unequal treatment of Muslim Americans. In this interview, she tells Khalil Bendib how she has managed to break through the infamous glass ceiling while remaining true to her roots. Leila Laalami is an essayist and a novelist and the author of The Other American and most recently, Conditional Citizens on Belongings in America. She's a professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. Leila Lalami, welcome to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's so good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Leila, ever since USC days, for the past, when I was at USC, for the past three decades or so, I have had the pleasure to follow your media interventions, which I thought were always luminous, brilliant, funny even. Humor always being a plus when you're trying to persuade. Then eventually your stellar itinerary as a novelist, winning you award after award. It's such a thrill to speak to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the kind words. You are known even more as a novelist nowadays than editorialist. Your new book, Conditional Citizens, is a mix of personal memoir and political essay. What made you want to write such a book instead of another novel, especially knowing that your political views might alienate much of the mainstream and jeopardize your support in the media and among readers. <laughs> well, just to be clear, I am working on a novel right now, so it's not as if I stopped uh, okay. you know, working on novels in order to do this. But what happened was really that I had been, as you mentioned, I had been writing quite a lot of nonfiction over the last 20 years, a lot of book criticism, op-eds, reviews, essays, that sort of thing. And uh, so it was always very natural to me. It was something that I did uninterruptedly during uh, the last 20 years. And so while I was working on the novels, I was also working on nonfiction on the side. But in 2016, I uh, was watching the Democratic National Convention when uh, that couple from Virginia appeared on stage to eulogize their son. Uh, his name was Captain Humayun Khan, and they basically expressed their opposition to Donald Trump, who at that time was the nominee for the Republican Party. And 
What followed in the next four or five days was just so illuminating for me because on the one hand, this couple was basically held up in the media as sort of heroes, you know, gold star parents whose child had made the ultimate sacrifice for his country. But then on the other hand, there were also accusations from the other side of the spectrum that Mr. Khan, the father, was a stooge for the Muslim Brotherhood, that Mrs. Khan had stood silently by her husband because she was an oppressed Muslim woman, that the son was in fact a stealth jihadist who had joined the U.S. Army in order to do harm to Americans. I mean, these really crazy conspiracy theories whose purpose was to turn this couple uh, into others, into not quite Americans. And so I wrote a short piece for the nation called Conditional Citizens, which basically said that this couple was considered American, but only up to a certain point. Once they started to raise questions about whether the Constitution was being abided by and whether they were when they were criticizing some of the the speeches of the Republican nominee, then they were no longer, you know, their allegiance was called into question, if you will. And so they were really conditional citizens, not quite citizens. And so the idea then came to me in 2016. And, and over the next four years, I worked on the essays that make up this collection on the side while I was working on the other novels. So, so that's really how the book started. It started as a reflection about citizenship that was prompted by by this uh, political event and by, you know, my own observations over the last 20 years of being a naturalized citizen. Yes, in this book, Conditional Citizens, you document any number of unfortunate instances when people in this country have shown you both ignorance and hostility as a Muslim Arab <laughs> female <laughs> in ways that I'm not accustomed to personally, to knock on wood. Whether it be the insulting comments you got at the international border by immigration officers mm -hmm. or members of audience at your readings throughout the country. Mm -hmm. uh, this is more than I have in my own experience of traveling and meeting total strangers and book tours and events. <laughs> so, and yet you don't wear a hijab and you don't look particularly Arab or in the stereotypical sense. <laughs> so I wonder whether the fact that you're a woman makes people's reactions more pointed and, and borderline violent. Is, is sexism the element that combined with Arab hatred and Islamophobia makes these encounters so explosive? Or is it just cowardice? I think it's an element. I think that sexism is an element. So what you're pointing to, what you're pointing to is essentially experiences of intersectionality, right? So basically the fact that I'm a person who belongs to these different categories. So obviously Arab, obviously Muslim, a woman, but also combined with all of these things, I'm also a person whose job requires her to have a profile, right? So I'm not particularly difficult to find on the internet and to send an email to. <laughs> so I do have to speak on, you know, in public forums. And so there is a certain amount of, I would say, intimacy that people think that they have based on that. And so then you start, you know, because of that, I think that's why I hear more about these comments. People feel like they can 
make these comments because I'm not anonymous. I'm not going about my life kind of like incognito. <laughs> I do have a byline in all these articles. You know, I'm easier to reach. So I think it's it's all of these things. And I think also there is not a single image of what, you know, a Muslim or an Arab looks like. So it just happens that when you have all of the, that when you are part of all these categories and you have a funky name and a passport that says you're born somewhere else, I think that immigration officers tend to get real chatty with me. <laughs> and sometimes that can be offensive. I didn't include in the book, obviously, these are just some of the experiences, not all of them, but there have been also encounters in workplaces, job interviews, all kinds of moments when, and this is what I'm really trying to get at in the book, where you could be going about in your life and suddenly you feel that you are like a specimen and not a human being, that you're embraced with one arm but rejected with the other. And the awareness of your own otherness in this country becomes impossible to escape. And that's what I'm really trying to get out in the book, in the little anecdotes that I include. I was shocked to hear the uh, comments you got at the border. I have never experienced that myself. And yet I look just as Arab and Muslim and what have you. Uh, you know, more. It, it's interesting that you say that because I have another friend who is actually Moroccan. And I remember when he read my book, he sent me an email and he said, well, I don't think anybody would tell you to go back to your country. And I thought it was interesting that he made that assumption. And I think he made that assumption because this person like me, uh, my friend, is also an academic professor and all, all that. And I think that people think that because of that, there's a certain amount of privilege and comfort that comes with that position, which is true. But it doesn't mean that I don't get those emails. And in fact, the irony was that as he had emailed me <laughs> within the week, I got another one of those emails. I do get emails that tell me to go back to my country. Although most often these days, it's really through social media. So it does happen. And I think that the condition of being a woman makes it so that everybody thinks that they can tell you these things in a way that perhaps they have to think before they can say the same thing to a man. Yes, and perhaps the fact that I'm tall and mean-looking <laughs> <laughs> has spared me these comments personally. I don't know. I'm very sorry to hear all these things that happened to you. As an obvious manifestation of this conditionality that you mentioned, this conditional citizen status that mm -hmm. a lot of us get, you mentioned instances of denaturalizations that happened in the past, before Trump. I wasn't aware of that history. Tell us a little bit more about it. Well, denaturalization is, just to be clear, is a fairly rare process. It's something that does require proceedings, and it's kind of a long and convoluted process and remains relatively rare. But it does have a particular history, and often that history is tied to the race of the applicant, the national origin of the applicants, and the political leanings <laughs> yes. of the applicants. So, I, so for example, I think in the book I give the example of this Indian, I believe is the one that you're talking about, Bhagat Singh Thin, the, the Indian college professor, I believe he was, and army veteran who was denaturalized because he was deemed not white. And the reason that I mentioned this is because denaturalization is essentially a tool of unbelonging that is directed towards individuals. And that the case of the Singh case dates back to the early 20th century, but 
Now, at the dawn of the 21st century, we're actually seeing it ramping up again during the Obama administration and then expanded upon by the Trump administration. And in a sort of a 21st century twist, there are now algorithms that help in the determination of which files need to be looked at for potential denaturalization. Another example of this conditionality is the surveillance that Muslims were subjected to after 9-11. In New York, for example, Mm -hmm. New York uh, NYPD went as far as planting informants in mosques, infiltrating student groups, and so on and so forth. Yet another example that you cite in your book is Trump's infamous Muslim ban. And worse than that, the Supreme Court's endorsement of it. Part of the reason why I talk about surveillance is because under the law, you know, you're guaranteed a certain amount of privacy in your home. The government cannot just barge in without a warrant into your home and cannot search and seize your belongings without due process. And what happened in New York, a lot of people obviously have heard about this case because it made headlines and is fairly recent. So in following 9-11, the New York Police Department established a unit called the Demographics Unit, where the purpose was really just to gather information about Muslims in the New York area. Uh, These were people who had committed no crime. There were no warrants. They were basically innocent people, native-born citizens or naturalized or immigrants or refugees. Basically, the only thing that united them was that they were Muslim. And the NYPD sent officers basically gaining access into homes through basically making up stories, saying things like, oh, we're investigating a crime in the neighborhood. Can we come in and ask you a question? or they infiltrated student unions, they infiltrated mosques, they went to Muslim businesses, and all of this was just to gather information and put it in all these files. And in several years of this warrantless surveillance, they really failed to generate a single terrorism lead. And after this program came to light and the Associated Press ran a long Pulitzer Prize winning series about it. The office was disbanded. But Michael Bloomberg, who was the mayor at the time of New York City, did not apologize for that until he was trying to run for the Democratic National Convention. And then the whole discussion started again. And then he sort of said it wasn't quite right, but not really. <laughs> What's interesting about that is that the surveillance of Muslim state dates back to before 9-11. And in fact, there is a very interesting documentary by an Algerian-American filmmaker named Asiya Bundawi. And this documentary is called The Feeling of Being Watched. And it is about surveillance of Muslims in the Chicago area in the 1990s, so long before 9-11. And it's kind of, so you see that the state, the state by which I mean the government, essentially looked at a certain class of citizens as citizens whose constitutional rights could be violated. They could afford to violate those rights because the mainstream wasn't going to care about that. And And so they surveilled those people and they violated their constitutional rights. And it happened again after 9-11. And for all we know, it's happening again to somebody else. So when you look at the way in which the government is behaving toward these groups of citizens, you can't look at that and not imagine that there are two systems of citizenship in the United States. There's equal citizenship and then there's conditional citizenship. And there's no law that says that you're going to surveil these particular class of citizenship. So I'm not talking about a legal apparatus that 
targets these people. I'm talking about an apparatus that targets these people without legal warrant, without there being an official reason or an official cause for it. And so that's what I mean by conditional citizenship. So as, for example, as distinguished from second-class citizenship, which is how you might describe, for example, the treatment of African-Americans during the during segregation. So, you know, it's it's not that there are laws that, you know, all of your phone calls are going to be monitored. It says that this monitoring is happening oftentimes without your knowledge, without anybody's knowledge, and you're just going out about your life. So that's a feature of conditional citizenship is that you are treated differently than other people. And oftentimes that's done sometimes even without your awareness. Yes, it's a form of institutional racism that is yes. not written in right. the law. Correct. In one chapter, you say, quote, the history of Muslims in this country is characterized by erasure, and that fiction often presents one of the few opportunities to learn about them or their faith, end of quote. You personally have tried in your fiction to compensate for this erasure by telling the fascinating story of an early Muslim pioneer in, in America Tell us briefly who he was and what his story was. This is just an incredible, incredible uh, story of transformation and cross-cultural encounter and reinvention. And I have to tell you that when I came across it way back in 2009, I just about fell out of my chair. I was reading a book about Moorish Spain and by a Moroccan author, actually. And, and halfway through the book, he mentioned this 16th century enslaved man from Morocco who arrived in what is now the United States at that time was part of the Spanish Empire, arrived in Florida in uh, 1528 as part of a huge expedition called the Narvaez expedition. And this man, along with three other Spaniards, became one of the first outsiders, in fact, the first outsiders to cross all of North America. And essentially, these people spent the better part of 10 years living among indigenous tribes. And we know their story because one of these, one of the survivors of this expedition was a, a Spanish explorer by the name of Cabeza de Vaca, wrote a narrative of this expedition and all of its failures and their journey across America lost. <laughs> they were basically looking for, for a port and they couldn't find it. And so he wrote this chronicle of the Narvaez expedition, and it was published in Spain in 1542. And it was really the earliest narrative we have of Spanish exploration in North America. So it's a very important document and very valuable in its own way because it includes a lot of ethnological detail about indigenous tribes in the early 16th century in North America. But this enslaved man from Morocco, whom Cabeza de Vaca describes as an Arabic-speaking black man, a native of Azamor, by the name of Estevanico, his testimony was not really included in this narrative. So the idea for my book was to find out as much as I could about him and basically fictionalize the rest. So I wrote a novel called The Moor's Account. It uses the same facts about the expedition, the same itinerary, essentially the same story, except that it's told from his perspective, the perspective of this man whom essentially history has relegated to a footnote. And the beauty of, <laughs> of my novel is that it wasn't bound by the conventions of history, and so it could... It could explore his life. And the reason that I say that in Conditional Citizens, that fiction presents one of these few 
opportunities is because so much of Muslim history in the United States, which, as you said, dates back to the 16th century, really has been erased because it's intimately tied to slavery. And so by definition, it is not included in the official records, except as, you know, entries in in sales ledgers and so on. And so that history really is erased. And, and the novel was an opportunity to sort of restore one of these stories. Your novels have been not only reviewed, which in itself is such a rare accomplishment, but hailed and extolled by the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and other prominent publications, which always amazed me and delighted me. (laughs) (laughs) Other than yourself and perhaps one other writer, Rabih Alamuddin, another Alam. (laughs) Is that a coincidence? I don't know. But who he hails from Lebanon. Other than the two of you, hardly any other Arab writers and poets in this country have been able to break that uh, infamous glass ceiling that has kept Arab Muslim stories from being heard and celebrated in the mainstream media. Other Arab writers have published, but mostly nonfiction, which reaches fewer readers. What do you attribute this paucity of interest in the mainstream media or perhaps even outright hostility? Actually, I think that a number of writers whose origins are from North Africa and the Middle East, since obviously there are more than just Arabs in North Africa and the Middle East. Actually, I think that a number of writers whose ancestry is in that part of the world have really made their mark in the U.S. literary landscape, I can think of several poets, actually. Khaled Matawa, who is a Libyan-American poet and a genius MacArthur Foundation fellow. I can think of the novelist Randa Jarrar, who writes novels and nonfiction. Etel Adnan. Sinan Antoun. Sinan Antoun, are you kidding? Yes, mm. of course. You know, So there's a number, I think, of writers. I don't see them reviewed. I read the papers. They're invisible. Hang on, but yes. invisible to whom? I mean, I think, for example, just today I was looking at the T magazine, which is a supplement of the New York Times, and in it is a long essay by Diana Abu Jaber about a Jordanian dish, mansaf. <laughs> so they are, <laughs> so they are writing. There's no question that they are writing. Our community has amazing poets and writers, essayists. They are writing. They are publishing. It remains true, however, that it is extremely difficult for all of us, really, to get as much publicity and marketing as other writers are getting. And I think that's where you're... Where yes, your that's my question. Really, yeah. yes. the, the publicity and marketing that, that is behind these writers remains feeble. And I think it's because we come up against a lot of expectations. Oh, you know, this book isn't going to sell or this. There is a lot of market pressure and publishing is a, as a business is a business that is majority white, more than 80% of the editors who work in New York publishing are white. And so it's very hard if you're writing from a different perspective to get your work to even be read because what sells the most in New York publishing is what is familiar. So if something is unfamiliar, unusual, or different, then it has like that obstacle, that additional obstacle to overcome. And so I think that things are definitely changing, I would say, because there's never been more published Arab writers as there are today. 
But I do think that the sort of systemic problems within New York publishing remain. And I think this is something that affects not just Arabs, but but other writing communities in the U.S. Yes, you make it sound a little bit as if it's not entirely political. No, 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 I do think it is political. No, 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 I do think it is political. And my favorite Mm. story about it being political is that uh, many, many years ago when Edward Said was trying to get New York publishers to be interested in the work of Nagib Mahfouz, this is before the Nobel Prize, and he was basically talking to an editor and saying, you really must translate the work of this Arab writer, the answer was, well, Arabic is a controversial language. (laughs) So so that tells you, this was maybe 20, 30 years ago. I think that there are reasons for that. I'm not saying that there are not, but I'm saying that there is a slew of reasons. There's political reasons, but there's also capitalist reasons behind this as well. Yes. And the two, uh, it's sometimes hard to know where one ends and the other one starts. The elephant in the room being the reach, the hegemonic reach of Zionism and the society, which keeps any dissenting voices when it comes to Israel-Palestine really limited. Something I I have experienced myself. I know a lot of people come up against that. Edward Said, who you mentioned, was not really recognized in in the mainstream media the way he deserved. Well, first of all, you know, there's a number of different views across the community of Arabs and people are publishing extremely critical work. And some of the most critical work that you see about Israel comes from Jewish writers in the U.S. I mean, I can name several writers that, you know, some of whom are my friends who are publishing about this. But I think but I think that there is a difference between writing about ourselves as a community, you know, like writing about our families or writing about our pasts and the reception of that work versus writing about Israel, which is a separate subject. And so I think that that definitely comes with its own pitfalls. And they're they're sometimes connected, but sometimes different from what other Arabs are dealing with, if that makes sense. So I think that if you're writing a novel about, say, for example, your grandmother who is her life in Senegal, say, for example, or if you're writing about your aunt and her incredible life journey in in Libya or whatever, those are two completely different topics than if you're writing about the system of checkpoints that the Palestinian people are living under. And I think those are completely different subjects and they're going to be treated very differently by publishers. Leila Lalami is a novelist and the author of The Other American, and most recently, Conditional Citizens on Belonging in America. She's a professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
Simple as Water, a new documentary from Oscar winner Megan Mylon, looks at the impacts of war, separation, displacement, and the struggle for normalcy through the everyday plight of five displaced Syrian families. The stories include a woman and four children living in a refugee camp in Greece, a man working as a delivery driver in Pennsylvania while applying for asylum for himself and his younger brother, and a husband and wife in northwest Syria who are searching for their disappeared son Muhammad. Simple as Water was filmed in Turkey, Greece, Germany, Syria, and the U.S. over the course of five years, and it came to fruition through the joint efforts of a small crew scattered across the world, many of those involved behind the scenes are Syrian refugees. I spoke with Megan about her documentary and why she decided to explore displacement and loss through the bonds between parents and children. I really came to this story as a human being, not as a filmmaker. Um, I think like many of your listeners, you know, as the out of Syria and the region intensified and, you know, smugglers boats and the drownings in, in the Mediterranean, I was just consumed with that news and couldn't really reconcile how it was that I was living in a world where parents could get their children out of a war zone to physical safety, to the affluent vacation beaches, and then not be able to have safe passage, to be forced to negotiate with smugglers, whether it was onto boats or routes under uh, borders, crossings. So I just was day after day waking up and reading and listening and watching and particularly it was still photographs coming out of the region and particularly photos of parents cradling their children. I had a three-year-old at the time and so I was very much in that you know headspace having having children changes the way you see the world it's both its beauty and joy and its injustice and so I was sort of experiencing this from afar as a parent and after a while if you make documentaries for a living and something has taken hold of your head and your heart you start thinking of whether there's a film for you to make and I had made many years before a film called Lost Boys of Sudan which was about the Southern Sudanese experience was very much a journey story of young men coming to America. I didn't feel like that was the right story for me to tell around this. There was so much courage that Syrians themselves, both filmmakers and just people experiencing this, were sharing. But I kept returning to that parental experience and feeling that there was something very primal and very universal in a parent's instinct to protect their child physically, but also to preserve a sense of a future and to preserve their right to move slowly out of innocence and to have joy. And so I felt like there might be a way in, felt like a perspective of war and conflict that I didn't feel like I had seen before. Then I sort of pivoted to trying to figure out whether that meant one family story. And that felt a bit anemic for the scale of what was happening. And sort of a a journey felt too tidy for the fractured and fragmented experience that everyone was enduring. And so somehow, I can't remember exactly the sequence of events, but I had a film I loved called 32 Short Films about Glenn Gould that creates a portrait of a man in all of these disjunctured different ways. And something in there 
helped us land on the film's structure, which are five distinct stories. And it was a way that would allow me to bring in all of the layers of this experience and the complexity of it and not give it sort of a neatness that felt artificial. Why did it take you five years, Megan, to make this film? And why these countries? Syrian refugees are scattered, of course, today all over the world, but majority are concentrated in Lebanon, Jordan, and of course, Turkey, which houses three and a half million uh, refugees. And depending on where they end up, their stories can be different, even though they share the same pain of leaving their homeland. So how did you come to focus on Turkey, Greece, Germany, Syria, which was very interesting and challenging for you to film, and the U.S.? When I land on and have sort of a gut instinct about what the film is going to be, then I really step back and do a deep dive research sort of mini grad school of pre-production. So tremendous amount of pre-production happens before we ever begin filming. And so to do that, I was fortunate to have some contacts from having made Lost Boys of Sudan in the refugee space that helped me connect with Syrian refugees and families and scholars who had been through this already and journalists who were covering the story. And every conversation led to two more conversations. And eventually you start hearing through lines of what are the family experiences that are true to this the Syrian diaspora, but are also true somewhat universally to the experience of displacement. And so it was things like children taking on adult responsibilities, these flipping gender norms where mothers are now not caretakers, but also sole breadwinners or single parenting. And the fathers have gone ahead to check if the route is safe. And now the only role for them as fathers is to plant their feet in Germany or Sweden or more affluent country in hopes of the family reuniting. Kafkaesque bureaucracies keeping families separated for year after year or children not being able to enroll in school because they're in an interim country of first asylum, but they're not applying for asylum there, which was the situation with the family in Greece. So it really wasn't specifically about ever looking at these set countries. And you mentioned, of course, it's neighboring countries when there's conflict and displacement. So we looked at storylines in Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey. It was really about sort of figuring out where we could find families that were experiencing these themes that we wanted to integrate. We're experiencing them in a moment that we could accompany. We're in a setting that was compelling because this is a movie, this is a visual experience, but that wanted to be part of the film. And so the way we did this, we were really fortunate to have two Syrian co-producers who worked across storylines, but then in each country, we had these small teams many of them refugees themselves because half the country had fled. So there were people stranded themselves in all of these different countries who could work with us and go out and look for families and talk to them about our motivations in making this film and what we were looking for, and then find families that wanted to collaborate, that wanted to be part of this and that were willing to trust us. This intimate of a storytelling only works if there's really enormous trust and relationship. So relationship building is sort of how we made this film. And it took years for lots of reasons. It took years because they're very complex stories. They're layered stories. We needed to work with incredible care and only with the right people. And we made this film entirely through grants, which gave us the freedom to decide 
when we would film, who we would work with, when we would be done. It gave us a lot of freedom in the editing room to just work and work again and share cuts and go back. But it also took a lot of time to raise the money. So we would often shoot one chapter and then work on it and raise money and do pre-production for the next one. So all of that combined to take a long time. You know, it's interesting you brought up the issue of trust because that's always a question, a pivotal question, respecting the subjects, especially people who are in these vulnerable situations. And also because I was thinking about this acclaimed documentary, Sabaya, which portrays the rescue of Yazidi women sexually enslaved by the Islamic State terrorist group. But many of these traumatized women said they never agreed to be in the film. That's true for every film I've ever made. It's your greatest collaboration. I mean, people even if they are letting you be with them, at every moment they're choosing the layers of themselves that they reveal. And I am fundamentally, and I work with people who care desperately about our art and our craft, but we are all human beings first and filmmakers second. And if you're trying to tell this sort of a story, first do no harm. And so we wanted to get all of the right layers on screen, but we were absolutely committed to getting there the right way. So the relationship building was many months before we ever started filming and it continued afterwards. One of the advantages of having our teams in each country was that the relationship could continue after the filming was over and every relationship in a film is different. And some of the people whose stories I've told come to my family's house for Thanksgiving and others I'm barely in touch with anymore. But we did make sure to sort of stay in their lives as much as they wanted us to and to be in touch and to really try to understand what their motivations and sharing their stories were. I mean, the film is so intensely intimate. There was a lot of intentionality on the parts of the families that they wanted this shared and, and yet they trusted us to say, all you need to do to share is just go about it as if we're not here. But of course, they know we're there, right? But it's like we were invited into this very sacred space of family. And we were invited in to be quiet, observing guests, not directing action, but, but welcomed in. I was on the phone recently with the mother in our Syria story, who I had the least direct contact with. And it's one thing for somebody to agree to have you film and then you go, you know, and then years pass. And so now as the film is coming out into the world, I just wanted to reconnect with her again. And she was so grateful that her son's story, she said, I want everyone to know Mohammed. I want everyone to know his story. And so, as you said, people at very intense times and you just have to be incredibly honest and transparent and sensitive and constantly questioning yourself. You spoke about the mother in Syria, and that was one of the vignettes in your documentary. Can you talk about how you were able to film in Syria? She lived in the opposition area. It was about a mother whose son was imprisoned and tortured before the uprising. And when you were filming her, her son, Muhammad was missing, and she was completely occupied day and night trying to find him. She has a phone call with someone where she says she was trying to go to Raqqa to look for her son. And I read that it was the most technically challenging part of your documentary. Half of 
all of Syrians have been forced to flee, but half of Syrians remain. And for me, the film is looking at these excruciating choices and emotions that conflict and particularly this conflict are forcing parents to endure. And one of the really hateful things of the Syrian experience and of the Assad regime is this legacy and this continued practice of disappearing and detained. And the agony of a parent not knowing whether their child was alive or not, not knowing whether they were alive and being tortured felt so intense to me and felt like one that we would be really remiss were we not to include in this, that it would be an incomplete. I mean, this is an incomplete telling. You can never make the definitive telling of this Syrian experience, but it felt like one that would be really missing. And we looked at actually filming with families in opposition areas. There are foreign journalists who had gotten in. That's not the sort of reporting and filmmaking that I do. And I was not eager to go into Syria, I'll tell you selfishly, but it also would have been such a risk for any crew and particularly for any family that we focused on. But we really wanted to include the storyline and we worked with a woman, a Syrian woman named Noura Ghazi, who's an amazing human rights lawyer and an advocate for families of the disappeared. And she lost her own husband in the regimes and she helped us connect with families. And we ended up landing on Dia and her husband Hussein and Mohammed's story because they live in Masayaf. They had been public about their son Mohammed's disappearance and he was taken by ISIS rather than the regime. So it gave them a little bit more freedom to be open and it felt safer to share their story. But I still wasn't able to go. And it's the first time I've ever directed anything without my own feet in the living room of the person that I'm filming with. But through our Syrian co-producers, we were able to connect with two women from Damascus who are credited in the film under pseudonym. And they had conversations with many different families and they would send footage back. We were able to get footage to Beirut and then they would send footage back. And we had hundreds of WhatsApp and Skype phone calls about what we were looking for. And they did the really fundamental piece of establishing relationship with Dia and gaining her trust and understanding what it was that she and her husband were experiencing and that we needed to uh, document in the film. And I think that you can really see the intimacy of their relationship in that chapter. We were very limited. We only felt comfortable filming inside their home and in, out on an orchard, some property that they have. So it limited the scope of the visuals, but in some ways I think it really made it even more intimate. And so then I went to Beirut and workshopped with them. They were able to come out and we met and looked at footage and did some back and forth. So it wasn't easy, but it felt essential. It felt fundamentally important to include that perspective in the film. I read that the sequences in that section of the film are captured by hidden camera gear and with equipment hidden in toys and diapers. Yeah, I don't want to go into I, too much detail about the specifics because they are working under pseudonyms, but they were having to get to, from Damascus to Masayaf and there are a lot mm -hmm. of checkpoints and Yes. And so there were just ways to go under the radar and not look like filmmakers. These are the creative ways that they were able to do that. So it was an enormous amount of trust on everyone's part and belief in this and belief in the importance of the film and in the importance of the layers of these stories that we're sharing. One of the stories that caught my attention was um, the story of Samra, a single mother of five whose husband disappeared in Syria 
and she lives in Reyhanli, a Turkish border town, which is the main crossing to and from Syria. She can't take care of her children because she's working in an agricultural field from dawn to dusk. And she's trying to send her kids to an orphanage. Can you introduce us to her and tell us about her story? What does that exactly mean for these women or these parents to give their children up and place them in an orphanage? Beatty, the center that she visits, is a sort of hybrid orphanage boarding school. In Turkey, adoption is not allowed, but it was a, a safe place for them. And, and some are like nearly every parent I know fundamentally wants a, to build for her children and she had five under 12 and she was the only breadwinner and so she's going out into the field leaving very early in the morning and she's afraid for them home alone and she wants her eldest Fayez who for me is such a soul part of this film who has taken on these intensely adult responsibilities he is the parent and caretaker all day long rather than being a child or being a student and so it's just such an impossible situation that we allow parents who have managed to get out of a war zone. She shouldn't have had to make that sort of decision. And her son shouldn't have had to be faced with having to tell his mom that he refuses to be separated. And you hear in the film, he says, you know, that my brothers have already lost their father and I let them lose our mother. We are not going to go. And it's so wrenching being faced with that sort of a decision, these impossible choices that people shouldn't have to make. There, We can do better. She's just making impossible choices. And because Fayez has taken on such adult responsibility, he weighs in in very adult ways about his primacy, that what's most important to him is that the family that remains needs to stay together. And it was one of the pieces when we were translating it, we had this team of translators and I kept pushing back that the dialogue felt artificial for a 12 year old, that it felt too mature. And that could we take another pass on this? Did we need to find a bilingual young child? And they said, no, he speaks like an adult. Mm. It's accurate. And another and it, sad part of it, Megan, was that Samra, she was doing backbreaking work in the fields for slave wages, five to ten dollars a day. I read that these people make. So at what price she's missing out all of the nurturing that she wants to do. And these are heavy, hard stories, hard choices, but woven throughout are really moments of joy and playfulness and that sort of sacred feeling of family and, and the gentleness of that space. And I felt like you see that when she comes home, it's just this yeah. love fest when she walks through the front door. And why does she have to be gone for so many hours? So much of the role of parenting that she wants to have mm -hmm. at maybe a lower temperature or parents make those sort of hard choices. There are many parents that have to make really wrenching choices about providing for their family financially versus providing for them emotionally. You really record ordinary life and the struggles of these refugees, a mix of happy and hopeful moments and moments of anxiety and hopelessness. Definitely that mix was very intentional because I think that is what life gives us, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is and the sorrow and the unspeakable loss. I remember one of my very first research calls with a, a woman who's one of our Syrian advisors was like, you have to just understand this is not just about surviving. This is about thriving. Part of the title, this simple as water, this like elemental, powerful force of water and moving forward 
and that the power of, of, of family love was really sort of what we were trying to capture. But at the same time, it is the dailiness of it. I wanted the film to feel like you were just dropping in on any random Tuesday. And for me, parenting is a lot of small mundane moments that build together and, and then punctuated by very intense things. So it is all of that sort of rolled together. And that's what we were hoping to just sort of give a sense of, but very much with a Omar, who's one of the protagonists of our U.S. chapter, when I first was talking with him about participating in the film, he was asking me, he said, is this going to be a sad movie? Mm -hmm. Do I want to be part of a sad movie? And I said to him, well, I have to say, I feel like what you and your brother went through is very sad. I hate that this happened to you, but being around you is not a sad experience and you are so Mm -hmm. forward looking. And all I'm going to try and do is share that faithfully. And so that mix of emotions was in the daily life of all of our characters. And our job was to, as faithfully as possible, share with the audience. You were talking about the the two Syrian brothers, Omar and Abed Sabha, who are trying to apply for asylum. How did they end up in the U.S.? Because in one scene, their lawyers is telling Omar's asylum is denied because he was with the Free Syrian Army. Well, it was incredibly common to have, I mean, you sort of had to choose sides. So, I mean, you don't have to be an intense militant or soldier. How did so, he get to the U.S. in the first place? Abid and the younger brother is devastatingly wounded by an aerial attack. And Omar decides to take his brother to Turkey for medical care. And when they were in Turkey, they were given a medical visa to come to the U.S. for some specialized care. And then once here, like anybody else, they had the right to apply for asylum. So they applied for asylum. Omar had done some work as a translator for foreign journalists when he was in the U.S. And he's just insanely resourceful, too. He kept moving around school districts because he would find out where the best public school district in Pennsylvania was. And he would move there so his brother could go to best schools and then. And of course, they would be expensive places and that became complicated. But he actually found Steve Schulman, the pro bono lawyer in the film. And then that's actually how I met them was through Steve. Originally, we were looking for parents and Steve said, no, you have to meet Omar. And I said, but I'm looking for, these are all parental portraits. And he said, Omar is the parent. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay. You know? And Albert is a yes, math prodigy, right? <laughs> yes, he's, he's really talented. And um, he happily, happy to report that very shortly after we finished filming, because they had separated their cases because Abid was a minor and injured that they thought he had a, a better chance for being approved and that then they could have Omar stay on as his guardian and Abid did get asylum. And Omar married a Syrian woman who came along with her extended family as a refugee and they have two young daughters. So while his case is still pending, his next interview, his appeal interview isn't until 2023. The system is so backlogged. What do you want to say about the plight of refugees? Predominantly, there is an anti-immigrant sentiment and policies in the Western world, even though some countries like Germany welcome those refugees, the Syrian refugees and the Iraqis and the Iranians and the Afghans in the beginning. But the sentiments have changed. And I think one good example is what's happening on the borders with Poland and Belarus right now, and also what's happening in uh, Greece. So what do you want this uh, film to say? I think that whenever we see conflict in the world, to know that this is the very personal experience of that, that lives in very specific 
and somewhat universal and timeless ways are being completely uprooted. That that upheaval is lives with all the same expectations and plans for their future that any of the rest of us have. And then that there are more people displaced now than ever before in history. And unless something changes radically, this is our future. If this is going to continue, which sadly I think it will, there are things we can do to not allow these Kafkaesque bureaucracies to leave families in limbo separated for years at a time. That when people make it out of conflict zones, there should be safe passage that when children are in countries of interim asylum, they need to be able to go into school. And so I think if we think about that when conflict happens, it's this very universal family experience that's being devastated and fighting to endure and fighting to stay together. I hope that the film is very accessible in it. I think of it as like a family love story. And so I hope it's a pleasure for people to watch. I hope it pulls them in. But I hope that as you reflect on it, anytime you hear of conflict, whether it's Syria or it's families arriving our own, on our Southern borders here, there is a universality to what this does. And there is a universality to that deep determination to make mm -hmm. life good and that deep determination of parents to provide and protect for their children. And these people you featured in your documentary, they represent millions of families who want a better life for themselves and for their children. I mean, that's always the balancing act for me is yeah. to find ways to give people all of their dimension and complexity and layers and still speak to something timeless and universal at the same time. And so yeah. not to make anyone an archetype or a cliche, but to find sort of very specific moments that can help us understand larger things. During a conversation among three refugees, three men in Germany, one says, Bashar al-Assad has won, he humiliated us, and we have hit rock bottom. And he repeats that. Any of the people you feature in your film, did they think they will ever go back to Syria? Yeah, I mean, he said, and he said, he's one and the world watched. You know, I think that's the most overtly sort of political phrase in the film. And this was the first film that I've gotten into where I didn't even start. We were trying to bring families into collaborating with us. I didn't even start to say, if only the world knew what was going on, things would change. Because of course, the world knew exactly what had been happening. And there was loads of coverage and nothing was changing. And they, actually, so, the world participated in the destruction of yeah. Syria. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. There were choices that made that allowed this to go on and be as hateful as it was. But I think it's such a personal answer about going back. And I think it changes day by day for each of them. I know that no refugee leaves their country because they want to, right? No one wanted to leave. They were forced to flee. And it's not home where they are now. They're making new homes, but it's not. I know all of our crew members and the families that we're in touch with that are outside of Syria, they do not at all feel like it's safe enough to go back. Megan Mylon is a documentary film director known for her films, Lost Boys of Sudan and the 2008 Oscar-winning Smile Pinky. Her new documentary, Simple as Water, is now streaming on HBO. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.